2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Here's what it says. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. The reason I'm bringing this verse up is because basically we all at some point get discouraged. Paul was no different. He got discouraged too because Titus didn't show up at Troas and that really bothered him. And his experiences like that, along with other experiences recorded in the Bible, it did discourage him. But here's the idea. It not only reminded him as he was being worn down, it reminded him of his mortality. And here, here is the idea. Each one of us is starting to grow older physically and we're starting to lose our physical abilities over time. Yet on the other side, the Christian is growing inwardly and the soul is growing through the power of the Scriptures by the grace of God and by His Word. This is what this class is for to renew your soul and renew your thinking and to give you good foundational thinking on 13 doctrines we're going to go through together. It's going to be a seven-month thing. So we have time. We have time. We'll be taking a break, of course, during the holidays, Thanksgiving, through New Year's. But otherwise, we'll be meeting together. So really appreciate you being here. Uh, if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, please ask. Um, I want you to ask. In the meantime, tonight, again, not in your book, workbook, tonight, we're going to look at a biblical timeline and have a worldview of what God has been doing over the course of time. This is not in your notes, and if you have any questions, feel free to stop me and we'll go through it together, but in education, in school, most generally, public schools talk about the longevity of the universe and our planet. Actually, our planet is quite young, very, very young, according to the Bible. Our, our resource is the Bible. Our authority is the Bible. Anything that goes beyond that is speculation and opinion. So as I go through this timeline, you'll see that the earth is very young but God has a purpose in it and his purpose is this to glorify himself through creation and people through creation and people so let's take a look let's see what happened as we go through this timeline together well before anything happened God was by himself father son and spirit by themselves Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 2, You are from everlasting to everlasting. God has always been, didn't need anyone, didn't require anything, wasn't counseled by anyone, wasn't influenced by anyone. He was complete within Himself with the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, co-equal, co-existing. And whenever it occurred, which He always knew, He chose to create. And he chose to create a vast universe, big, the stars, and small, microbiology. 
there is as much in a teaspoon of water as there is as you look in the sky and we see the stars. Teeming with life for glory. And as we know, He decided to create. And so when He created, date uncertain, He created the heavenly host. He created the angels. He created Satan. He created the demons. Because in Job 38, 6 and 7, it says this too, Where were the foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, 2,000 years before Christ, stated in his book, angels were created. Don't know when that happened, but we know the Bible says that it occurred. Then, in around 4004 B.C., God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So basically, the world is approximately 6,000 years old, 6 to 7,000 years old, based on genealogies from the Bible that go back through the line leading up to, of course, Adam and Eve. The Bible says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the host of them by the breath of His mouth. God in His wisdom knew what He was going to create, and He spoke it into existence by the power of His word. He had nothing to work on. There was nothing already in place for Him to build off of. He created The Bible says in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day He rested. He did that as an an example for us. Work six days, rest the seventh. So on day one, He created day and night. In day two, He created the firmament, sky. Day three, He created the earth, grass, trees, herbs, flowers. In day four, He created the sun, the moon, the stars. In day five, He he created flying creatures, land creatures, sea creatures. Day six, He created man in His own image. The seventh day, He rested. Of course, all according to the Scriptures, all according to the Bible. So human history began when, when He created. After God's six-day creation week, we don't, we don't know when, uncertain date, was the fall of man through Adam and Eve. She took of its fruit and ate and gave to her husband and ate. Disobedience. The woman was deceived. The man transgressed. The woman left to her own devices was deceived. The man knowingly disobeyed God. That's why the Bible records in Romans 5 that through one man sin entered the world and brought forth death. That man is Adam. He's the first Adam. And the second Adam, of course, is the Lord Jesus as you read through the Bible. So the Lord promised, though, 
in the fall of man, date uncertain, that there would be a Redeemer. Very, very important. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Savior is promised all the way back in Genesis 3. And you'll see that moving forward as the theme of the Bible. All the way into, as we move into eschatology, a little bit later on this evening, the Savior is promised. The Savior will see comes. The Savior then leaves, but He's going to return. The bruised head of the serpent speaks to the final judgment of Satan. And of course, the bruised heel refers to the crucifixion of Christ. So there's the promise, Genesis 3.15. About, oh, 1,650 years later, since God created the heavens and the earth, He flooded the earth around 2348 B.C. Judgment didn't take long because of the result of, of what? Death and sin. Genesis 6.5, the intention of their hearts and thoughts were evil continually. So judgment came to some. Judgment came to most. Except for eight people. So through these eight people, the Savior's promise, and they have to go through a line of people to get to the Lord Jesus. Noah and his family were in the ark one year and ten days. The ark took 120 years to build. And the Bible teaches us that Noah never saw rain and he never saw even a mist. So he was a man of righteousness. He was a man of faith building a boat that needed to float and he'd never seen rain. The boat weighed 81,000 tons, 547 feet long, 91 feet wide, and 54 feet high. Perfect to float and just float without having to navigate and travel. It just needed to float. So God made a promise when Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the water of the flood, that there would never be another flood. Of course, the rainbow that we see in the sky, when you and I see that, that's God's promise. He will never flood the earth again with judgment. But judgment is coming, as we'll see later. Not through water, but through fire. But that happened in 2348 B.C. About 148 years later, after the flood, the earth's population grew through Noah's three sons and wives. And so did the people's pride. They wanted to build a tower of massive proportion. You'll see that, the Tower of Babel. They built in 2200 B.C., driven by the sin of pride. <coughs> Genesis 11.3, Come, let us build ourselves a city. The tower was 650 feet high, around 250 stories high, and a quarter mile wide at its base. Because of their pride, God intervened and gave people multiple languages. Why? To confuse their unity so they didn't understand each other to stop the building of that tower. So people then separated and went to different regions 
of the earth which we now experience. That again happened in 2200 BC with the Tower of Babel. About 200 years after that, the Bible records an interaction, very interesting story, between God, Satan, and a man named Job. This was around 2000 BC. God wanted to show his sovereignty. So have you ever heard, will they have the patience of Job? Of course. Above that is God's sovereignty and God's grace giving Job patience to to deal with what he was experiencing. Job suffered immensely. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health, but he didn't lose his life. Even his three friends came and talked to him and said the reason he was suffering was because he was in sin and he wouldn't confess it. But that wasn't the issue because when we read in Job 1 and 2, God and Satan were having a discussion and God let Satan have access to Job. So in Job 2.10, as he's going through these experiences, he says to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? That's true for you and me. As hard as life is, all that we get that's good is from God. All that we experience, though difficult, is still good because it comes from God. Nothing, as we'll find out through our study, through the next few months, everything you and I experience is from God. We make choices. We're responsible. And God is sovereign over it. And He allows it and purposes it to happen. Difficult to understand. But again, as we go through our study, we'll, we'll dig a little bit deeper into that. At the end of the book of Job, Job has a conversation with God starting in chapter 38 and goes through chapter 41. And basically God says, where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Where were you when I created the sons who sang on high? Remember we went through that verse before earlier in our slides? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? Where were you when I created the sun, the moon, the stars? Of course, Job then said, I've heard of you with the hearing of my ear now. I see you, and I repent in dust and ashes. What's the point? We lose focus of what's going on in our life. God is sovereign over all of it and has a purpose in it for his glory and to help us to know him better and to grow to be more like his son, the Lord Jesus. That happened around 2000. BC. There was something else going on then around 2000 BC. This is the time of the patriarchs, the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Scholars believe the book of Genesis, starting with Abraham through the end of Genesis chapter 50, covers approximately 2,400 years. Long time. It's in chapters 12 through 50 that God chooses a nation to be his witness station to the world. And that's Israel, of course. I have a question for you. Is Israel still God's witness nation in the world in this moment in time? He is. They are. Yep. They are. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. 
So here God chooses Abraham and starts the process of delivering the Savior through that family tree. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. He's unfolding history to bring about the birth of His Son. Think of the Old Testament this way too. The expectation of Christ. Think of the New Testament this way. The realization of Christ. Old Testament expects Him. The New Testament realized Him. Because history hinges on the person of the Lord Jesus. And it's here that we see of Sarah and Lot and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Hagar and Ishmael. Here we see the 12 tribes given through Jacob and his handmaids and his wife Rachel and Leah. Here we see the 12 tribes that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. And here we see this one tribe, Judah, that Jesus is going to come from through the loins of Abraham who gave birth to the son Isaac, who gave birth to the twins, Jacob and Esau, and then through Jacob. So you see the line and the promise being fulfilled 2,000 years before the Lord Jesus was born. Think about it this way too. How old is America? 270 years old? Something. That's 2,000, that's 10 times longer than our country has even been a nation. That's how long ago this was in the promise. But God makes a promise and the Bible teaches He never lies and it will come about. Over 2,500 years since God created the world and in His plan of redemption in Genesis 3.15, He brought Moses onto the world stage. Approximately 500 years, four to 500 years after uh, the patriarchs. Moses is the most important Jewish prophet because he instituted the Passover. He led Israel out of Egypt. He led them in the 40-year wilderness wanderings. He wrote the first five books of the Bible in the Old Testament. He made... He designed the tabernacle through the grace of God as God gave it to him. As you read through Leviticus and Numbers, you'll see the dimensions of the tabernacle. Why? Why did God give that to him? Place of worship. They didn't have a place to worship. You know, a location for people to come. And we'll see later to sacrifice. They needed a place to sacrifice animals through their burnt offerings and trespass offerings and sin offerings, all as a type of the Lord Jesus to come. So he brought forth the tabernacle, which, by the way, we'll find out later was destroyed, and then rebuilt. But he brought them to the promised land given to Abraham about 550 years previously is Moses, around 1445 B.C. Well, they get to the promised land, Canaan. Joshua became the leader of Israel upon the death of Moses. Joshua was a tremendous tactician and warrior. 
Not as good as David, and of course not as good as the Lord Jesus, as we'll find out later. But he said, divide the land and conquer it to give to the 12 tribes. So as a conquest of the land, approximately 1400 B.C., that's the book of Joshua. Did they do what they were told and conquer the land? No. They did not. However, Joshua did lead the Israelite army in that conquest that God promised Abraham six centuries before. So the conquest of the land, they're in the land. Moses didn't make it. God wouldn't let him go in because Moses disobeyed him when he struck the rock with the staff instead of speaking to the rock to get water. He was angry with the Israelites, struck the water, disobeyed. God didn't him let him go in. So Joshua goes in, conquest of the land, and we see the book of Judges. This is the history before kings. This is 1400 to 1000 B.C. Israel didn't have a king. They were led by judges. God would raise up a judge and judge the land. The Bible says at the end of Judges 21, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just did what they wanted to do. Sound familiar? Othniel was the first judge. Samuel was the last judge. In between Ehud, the left-handed judge. Remember he killed Eglon, the king. Gideon's in there. Deborah's in there. Of course, Samson is in there. This is an important time in history, in the redemption, in the story of Israel's kings. Remember Genesis 3.15? A Savior's coming. Abraham is chosen. Witness nation. He has 12 tribes. Judah is in one of the tribes. Conquest of the land. Judges. There needs to be a king promised. This is a redemption in the story of Israel's kings. 1,000 B.C. 1,000 years before Christ is born. This is where David becomes the eventual king after King Saul. David is Israel's greatest king. David is Israel's greatest songwriter, the book of Psalms. David is Israel's greatest warrior. There's no one like David. As you go through the book of Kings, first Kings in the divided kingdom, coming up later, they would compare themselves to David. How was David's personal life? David was a a murderer, an adulterer. He was a shepherd boy. He did a census God told him not to do. Killed tens of thousands of Israelites because he disobeyed God. Why was he declared God's greatest king? Because this is what God was looking at as he is for you and me. Our heart. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. There was no one like David. 
you ever read the story of First and Second Samuel? Captivating reading. Captivating. It speaks of him, what he did, how he responded to the Lord, how he responded to the truth. Top left picture, you'll see that's David getting ready to cut the hem of Saul. Remember Saul was sleeping one night because Saul was trying to chase him down and kill him? David was so close he could have he cut the hem off of him, didn't kill him, could have. Top right, of course, that's David and Goliath. David as a young boy, teenage boy, killing Goliath, who's nine feet tall. See him there at the right as a harp player, tremendous harp player. Do you remember who he played his harp for? Saul. It's King Saul. Bottom left, that's Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, kneeling before David, before David gives him the orders to give to Joab, his nephew, to put him on the front lines to have him killed. But David is in the United Kingdom. Tremendous time for Israel. He has multiple sons. This one is through Bathsheba, named Solomon. Solomon takes the throne. And Solomon ruled as the final king in the United Kingdom. Jesus will then be the eventual perfect king to rule. Given to him, to David, there'll be a person, king sits on the throne. That line is still going on for someone to sit on the throne as king. That's called the Davidic covenant. Solomon was known for his what? What's Solomon Wisdom. known for? Wisdom. What else? Riches. Riches. Yeah. Wealth. Solomon basically took in $40 billion a year in tribute from the people around the world. He had a visitor one day from the south, Queen of Sheba. She said, I heard of your wisdom, but none is like what I'm actually hearing. Solomon, Solomon's wisdom was so vast that he wrote Proverbs. Some, some are recorded, some aren't. And people would just listen to him talk about creation God had made, animals in the kingdom, fish in the sea, economy, education. They would just sit and listen to him. What does God say apart from salvation, is his most precious gift to us. Wisdom. The Bible. What's it more precious than? Honey? Better than a honeycomb? Wisdom. Isn't it interesting that Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4-7, get wisdom, get understanding. And then in verse 7, he said, wisdom is the principal thing. So get wisdom. And all you're getting, get understanding. He said, not only get it, understand it. That's the book of Proverbs. That came from Solomon. Solomon wrote it through the power and superintended by the Spirit. Going back to Solomon's wealth, $40 billion a year in gold each year as tribute. They estimate Solomon's net worth, richest man who ever lived, 2.2 trillion. 
Think about that. 2.2 trillion. Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world as of this moment in time. His net worth is 420 billion. Solomon's was 2.2 trillion. The Bible says silver in his days were as common as rocks. They were in gold, precious metals. However, there were some problems. Solomon liked women. And he had a thirst for women. His dad even told him in the book of Proverbs to watch out for women. He didn't listen. How many wives did he have? 700. How many concubines did he have? 300. He had a thousand women at his disposal. And here's the problem. He disobeyed God and they turned his attention away from God. They turned his attention to false gods. Baal. Ashtoreth. Dagon. And so he was worshiping them. And that all led to a divided kingdom around 930 to 586 B.C. Once powerful and the United Kingdom split, it stayed that way for over 340 years. How old is America again? 270? 280? Yeah, somewhere in there. The kingdom split for 340 years. What was the cause? Idolatry, sin, following Ishtar and Moloch, Baal, as I mentioned before. So God judged his chosen nation and divided the 12 tribes. Ten went to the northern kingdom. You'll see in the Bible it's called Israel. Two tribes went to the south. You'll see them called Judah. All kings in Israel, the northern tribe, all bad. All, every one of them's bad. Some were good, some were bad in the southern kingdom. The point, at risk is the line of David to bring a Messiah to redeem the world. Back to Genesis 3.15. And as you read through First and Second Kings, sometimes you'll read it in Chronicles, they'll get down to one person in the Messianic line. Josiah is one. And he was a boy when he became king to keep the line going forward, moving forward. The northern kingdom was captured by Assyria in 722 B.C., southern kingdom 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So then you'll read in your Bible the books of Nahum, Jeremiah, You'll read Lamentations, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Ezekiel, Daniel. All of these were at this time when they became captive. And I might add that the temple was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and stripped the temple of gold. Took all that gold 
because of Israel's idolatry. Approximately 3,500 years since God created the universe and 460 years since the time of David, God directed an interesting man to return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. His name was Nehemiah. He directed him to go back for a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, not near as glorious, but it was there. Sometimes you'll read in the book of Chronicles or Ezra or the book of Nehemiah when they're building it, people who were captive went to the lands who were held captive, saw Solomon's temple, returned to the land, and they saw this temple, and you'll, they'll say, oh, if it was like it was before. They had a comparison from that temple to the one Nehemiah was asked to rebuild. But they didn't have the resources to build it like Solomon did. But that was completed in 516 B.C. They returned to the land and rebuilt the temple. Very important. That temple is very important. Because that's where the Jewish nation, through Abraham, sacrificed and worshipped God. And what are they waiting for now? The Messiah. That temple's very important to them. And it's been rebuilt. So we've basically come to the end of the Old Testament. And you'll see all kinds of things in what's called the intertestament period, 400 years of silence when God spoke to Nehemiah and then through an event that's coming with the forerunner of Christ. 400 years, nothing from God, nothing. Palestine was ruled by Egyptians called the Ptolemies, the Maccabeans, and Rome. Very important people in history. Because it's through the power of Rome that we see the timing of God bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. But the people were still waiting for the Messiah promised 4,000 years before the fall before at the fall. So here's the birth of John the Baptist around 7 to 5 BC and we now shift into the New Testament. The forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah. The Bible says that John the Baptist was the cry in the wilderness. He's the one saying, repent. The gospel is at hand. Repent. The kingdom is near. That's a long time to wait. They were waiting. And he gives words to Jesus coming. But Jesus is born in 6 to 4 BC. He's a contemporary of John the Baptist. He was born months after the birth of John the Baptist. So our very first slide, the eternal God who was complete within himself. Father, Son, Spirit, co-equal, co-existing together. Didn't need anybody. Wasn't influenced by anybody. 
wasn't counseled by anybody, perfect within himself. The second person of the Trinity became a man, and he left the glories of heaven. The Messiah had arrived. Uh, Messiah meaning the appointed one. The appointed one had come. So Jesus is baptized around 30 years of age, and he begins his three-year ministry around 27 A.D. See him there? Talking, ready to be baptized. What did he do? He said he was the Son of God. And to show that he was, he healed people. He let the deaf hear, the blind see. He raised people from the dead. And basically disease in Palestine at the time of Jesus, when people would come to him, basically was clear of all disease. No sickness. Why? To show he was the Messiah. Do you remember the story when John the Baptist was in jail? And he asked his disciples, go find out if Jesus is who he says he is. Remember that? He wanted to make sure that he even knew that Jesus was who he said he was. Remember what Jesus said? Of course, he said, I am. And the works proved it. There's always proof that needs to come. As we're going to go through our studies over the next few weeks, in a sense of proof of when somebody says they have the gift of healing or the gift of tongues, what's the proof of that? What's the background of that? We'll talk about that. Here, Jesus proves who he says he is. He even said, if you don't believe I am who I say I am, believe the works in which I do. Believe, see what you see. All recorded in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do that. He proclaimed himself to be God and the purpose of becoming a man. And so all of that culminated into his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, three years after his ministry began. He presented himself as a king. Remember back in the time of Judges? No king. Remember in the time of David? thousand years before a promise of an everlasting king Jesus rides into Jerusalem and presents himself as king king of the Jews king to Israel a triumphal entry on Palm Sunday on the day of his entry into Jerusalem was not only prophetic this It also ended the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. Really important in understanding a biblical timeline. Have you heard of the 70 weeks of Daniel? From the book of Daniel? When Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, that stopped at the 69th week of Daniel. So something had to take place until the 70th week of Daniel because God always fulfills His promises. There's going to be 70 weeks time of trouble through the Messiah. Let's hold there, and I'll talk about that here in just a second. So there there you see him coming in. 
and because they reject Jesus as their king? Isaiah 53 said they would. They kill him. They kill him. The promise of God to redeem humanity, including us, given to Adam approximately 4,000 years before that, was fulfilled with Jesus' death and his resurrection. Sinful man now has a way to get to God. Before it was through sacrifices and the temple, and you had to be a Jew. Now everybody can, Jew or Gentile, to come through Christ to heaven. That's a pivotal event in history was completed with Easter Sunday. It's one thing to say I'm going to die and rise from the dead. It's another say, thing to say I'm going to die and rise from the dead and do it. 500 witnesses saw him, 1 Corinthians 15, 500. The apostles saw him. Mary Magdalene saw him. The Bible says if we have two witnesses in a situation and it's confirmed, that's good enough. 500 saw him. Amazing. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended. Where is he now? He's in heaven, the right hand of the Father. He's there. The God-man is there. Then this. In 30 AD, 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after his ascension, came the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Jesus said, I will go, another will come. I will advocate for you in heaven, the Holy Spirit will advocate for you here and lead you and guide you. I'm there, the Holy Spirit will indwell you. And here's this, the Father, Son, and Spirit indwell us. It's not just the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal, co-existing. In Galatians, Paul says, Christ who is formed in you. It's not only the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus himself as well. So this is the beginning of the church age. And the 69th week of Daniel has stopped. And now we're in the church age. That's the age you and I are living in right now. The church age. The period of time from Pentecost to the rapture of the church could come at any time. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, 1 to 3. All speak of the rapture of the church, of believers. It covers the period the church age does in which the church is on earth. Except for those who have passed and are now in heaven. It corresponds with the dispensation of grace. We live in an age of grace. There was always grace. People are always saved by grace in the Old Testament, now and in the future. It's always by God's favor. But this is the church age, and God is using the church who believe in Christ as their Messiah to be witness people for the world, not a witness nation. That's Israel, and they are 
right now set aside. It's individuals, you and me, are witnesses to the world of the Lord Jesus. Jesus predicted the church age in Matthew 16 when he said, I will build my church. I will build it. He said there'd be a church. Church means called out ones. Church means those who are in the world and God calls them out. How? Through the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and God's grace. He's calling out people to himself. That's, that's the time we're living in now. And the church has been growing for 2,000 years plus. Before he establishes his kingdom on earth, which by the way, Jesus is going to return, second coming, he's going to come for the church. An event commonly called the rapture a snatching away is what the Bible says it is. 1 Corinthians 15. The rapture is the next event in the biblical timeline. The imminent return of Christ is here in the rapture. People who are raptured, who are alive, go to heaven. People who are dead, who died before, their bodies are in the grave, their spirits in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Bodies will be reunited with their soul. The Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. We will meet Christ in the air. Be with Him forever. Happen at any time. It's not the second coming. May I say this as well? There are views out there that some do not believe in the rapture of the church. We believe in the rapture of the church based on three specific scriptures. As I mentioned before, John 14, 1 to 3, 1 Corinthians 4, 13 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, later on in the chapter. Note this the rapture of the church, there's no judgment. There's no bloodshed. Jesus does not come and set his feet on planet earth. In the rapture, meet him in the air. Second coming, we'll get to in a second. Judgment. Bloodshed. Jesus is literally on the earth. Look for those two distinctives as you read your Bible. Those are the separating truths for the church rapture, and second coming. So the question is, since no man knows the hour or the day of that either, along with his second coming, a question is for you and me, are we ready? Are, are we ready? Because we're all going to die. Today we're just another day closer than we were yesterday to dying. Are we ready? Live long enough, you've seen family die, brothers die. Friends die. So you know it's true. We're going to die too, apart from the rapture. Are we ready? Believing in Christ as Savior, as Lord, and He rose from the dead, and asking for mercy that God will give you and me 
is how we know. Well, the church age ends and God resumes a 70-week program for Israel at the rapture of the church. Again, uncertain date could be any time. Shortly after the rapture, time unknown, the seven-year tribulation, also known as the 70th week of Daniel, will begin. This is found in Revelation 6, 1 to 8, and Matthew 24, verses 5 to 8. Note that a world, a world leader will be known at this time. His name is Antichrist. Before the rapture of the church, he's not known. People speculate, but he's still not known. Here, he'll be known. And he does something very important that ties into the temple. He makes a peace treaty with Israel and says, come back to the land in Palestine and offer your sacrifices to your Messiah. Israel agrees. Israel spread out over the earth because of what their disobedience allowed for God to scatter them, goes to, Israel, goes to Israel, goes to Jerusalem to start their worship again. Also at this time, the fourth, first four seals of judgment are unleashed by the Lord on the earth for the first three and a half years. It's called beginning birth pangs. There's a white horse rider. He conquers There's a red horse, pieces removed. There's a black horse, huge inflation. (coughs) He has a balancing scale. Things are out of balance to represent how things are just out of kilter. And there's a pale horse. And death has Hades with him. He kills a fourth of the earth in this first three and a half years. He kills them through famine, sword, death, and beasts. How does someone make trade to give food, have commerce? How does someone able to feed themselves and their family during this time? Mark of the beast, they have to have a mark to have an opportunity to exchange for commerce. What do people do who don't have the mark? God takes care of them, but they have to fend for themselves. They don't go to the store. I might have you know, this was about 15, 20 years ago, came to my attention when I was in business back then, that they were already planting behavioral chips in people in New York City. They wanted to monitor their shopping behavior They wanted to see as a pattern of what they did. They also had what was called people meters. People meters were basically they strapped them on people, watched their behaviors. This has been going on for a while. What's next is basically currency is going to be done away with. Just look how we use our credit cards. How often do we use cash? How often do we write checks? Little to none would be my guess. God is placing things into position 
and steps for the return of His Son. Nothing should surprise us, even though it does, with the way things are now in the world. The Bible teaches us that God determines every step. Nobody does anything without His permission. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. No wonder Jesus said in John 14 when he was about ready to die the night before he was crucified, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. It is troubling because we're human. But the Bible says, let not your heart be troubled. God has a purpose. He says, I will purpose it. I will do it. There's more in this seven-year tribulation called the abomination of desolation. Right at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus referred to it as that, abomination of desolation. Mentioning it at an, as an end-time sign before he returns. Mentioned in Matthew 24, 15. The Antichrist sets himself up in the holy place in the temple and declares himself to be God and to worship him. It's called the abomination of desolation. He will be an object of disgust. He'll be an, an, an idol. He'll cause destruction, desolation. He'll cause people in Judea to flee to mountains. Matthew 24, woe to the woman who is a nursing mother at that time. Why? Difficult to run when you're nursing a child. Matthew 24 is not the rapture. It is this point in the seven-year tribulation. That's coming in the future. The second three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation is called the Great Tribulation. Severe birth pains. The time of Jacob's trouble. Meaning the time of Israel's trouble. Remember Jacob's name given to him by God was Israel? This is the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Israel's trouble. Thought it was bad the first three and a half years? This is different. Severe birth pains. A quote from Jeremiah 30 verse 7 which says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Time pictures women going through the pains of childbirth, indicating a time of agony. Only women understand that. Men can only imagine that. But there's hope for Judah and Israel. Sin is the purpose of the judgment the Lord has for Israel's rejection for Jesus. And He's bringing back through these judgments Israel, His chosen nation, who rejected the King on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. But God always fulfills His promises. And there's hope. And He's calling back the nation. This is called the 70th week of Daniel. 
And so the Bible records Jesus' second coming in Revelation 19, 11 to 16. He returns with the hosts of heaven. That's you and me. The church and all those who believed in him come with him in the battle of Armageddon. All enemies of the Lord will be destroyed in a bloodbath described in Revelation 16 and 21 to 3. It is a bloodbath. Devastating. No one gets away with anything. The Antichrist at this time will be cast into the lake of fire and bound for a thousand years at the second coming. The nations and their representatives who are still alive will be judged. Not everybody on the earth will be at the Battle of Armageddon, but there will be a host of armies. Jesus comes and he judges the nations, Matthew 25. The goats are the left. They're cast to hell as a holding place. The sheep, the righteous, go with Jesus into the millennial kingdom. Israel will be restored to her land, never more to be removed. Amazing. It's coming. The Bible says it's coming. The Bible recorded he'd come the first time. Look at how our calendars are set to his first coming. As sure as the first coming, he's coming a second time. He is. Doesn't seem that way sometimes, most of the time. But he is because the Bible says so. So Israel is brought together and Jesus the king promised in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant will reign as king. He'll rule the earth with absolute power to govern. He'll be king of kings and lord of lords. He'll sit on the throne of David as promised, ruling over Israel and the world. He'll reign with firmness and equality. He'll rule with a rod of righteousness. No long delays in justice. No long waits for trials. No long waits for sentences to be carried out. No one being charged with something that they didn't do and vice versa. He's always right. He's always just. And he's always immediate. It is going to be marked by material and spiritual blessing when King Jesus rules. People will live longer. Material blessing will increase. Physical being will increase because of that time. Isaiah chapter 11. Everyone who goes into the millennium will be righteous. They're all Christians. They're all saved. But during that thousand year period, there'll be marriages. People get married. People have kids. Kids grow up. Kids rebel against the Lord Jesus. And they do. Even with the perfect king reigning, sin is 
so devastating, under a perfect reigning, they resist, rebel, and reject the Lord Jesus. Just like today, the offer of salvation of the Lord will be given in the millennium to believe in Christ, just like now. But a rebellion is coming. And the messianic kingdom after a thousand years will close with this. Apostasy, rebellion, and against King Jesus. Apostasy, a falling away from. People fall, fell away, will fall away from Christ. Those born who reject the Lord, coupled with Satan, who is released from the pit, will make war. The Bible will call it and define it as Gog and Magog, a land and a ruler. This is the time. God will crush them yet again in the last battle of the ages, the final rebellion and judgment of Satan. Literally, the blood will rise to the bridle of the horse. A devastating win for the Lord. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. The, the adversary who, in his pride, Ezekiel 14, wanted to be like God, I will be like God, I will be like the Most High, who was the adversary from the beginning, who is not comparable to God Almighty, is cast into the lake of fire, never to get out. But that's not all. All those who reject Jesus as Lord and the Word of God will be resurrected to meet Jesus at the great white throne judgment. You'll see in the Bible this is called the second resurrection. The Bible says in Revelation 20 verses 11-15, all people will be judged by Christ, found guilty of their unbelief in Him as Lord and Savior. All you and I know people who are not saved and do not accept Jesus as Savior and reject Him as Lord, as God, and He rose from the dead are here. They're resurrected out of the grave, scattered in the depths of the sea. Doesn't matter. God will bring them back together in His creative ability and they'll meet King Jesus. Here's what some of them are going to say to Him. They're going to say things like, didn't we prophesy in your name? What's Jesus going to say? I never knew you. I got to tell you, that's frightening. That's frightening. To think one is saved and not. And to hear that, he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They'll be cast out into the lake of fire where Satan is, and they will suffer final and everlasting punishment. What are they being punished for? Their sin. Every word, deed, thought, 
motive will be judged by God in the lake of fire for all eternity. And when they've been there 10,000 years, the very next day they begin day one to pay for their judgment. They never get out. Now that's frightening. Never get out, ever. Charles Spurgeon said this, hell is a place where there's no hope. They have no hope. But here's the thing. They rebel against God there. They, they hate God there. But that's where they go after the great white throne judgment. After this judgment, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to destroy it with fire. Not by flood, as we talked about earlier in the flood back in our timeline. There'll be a new Jerusalem and the everlasting presence of God among all Christians, all the redeemed, all believers. We're there. We're going to be there. Satan will be shut out. Sin will be gone. Temptation will be lost forever. And we stand perfect in Christ. And the new world to come is far more glorious than the one we presently know. I think there are some, the Bible teaches there's continuities between this one and the next one. But this one is so twisted and marred by sin, it's not how God designed it to be, even though He knew this is how it would be. Best of all, Christ will be there. Heaven is where Christ is, where the Lord Jesus is. That's heaven. Sure, it's a place, but that's where He is. So the final locations for all people, nobody's admitted. Oh, rather, nobody's omitted. Either heaven or hell. Some in heaven, some in hell. Revelation 21, 1 to 22, 5. We have the bliss and peace of heaven. Jesus is there, perfect mind, not tainted by sin. We have the righteousness of Jesus. Hell is different. It'll be an unquenchable fire, a place of memory and remorse. That's Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. There's outer darkness. There's no light there. Pitch black. The Bible tells it's outer darkness. Place of thirst, place of misery, place of pain, place of frustration, place of anger, place of separation. That's the eternal state. So that's the timeline, <laughs> as you see on the screen, from creation through the new creation. It shows the flow.